Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. Today, I'm going to continue the series on abortion and infanticide in the ancient world, namely ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I'm not going to cover a law of the day today because we have a lot to cover as far as citations of early church fathers and uh, early Jewish philosophers, some of whom will be referencing scripture. Now, before we continue, I do want to say that this uh, episode might have some details in it that might be sensitive to younger ears, so please just make sure that you're thinking about that as you listen. Now, last time we looked at some of the historical um, evidences of the practice of abortion and infanticide and contraception in both ancient Greece and ancient Rome. We looked at uh, arguments for and against it by pagan uh, historians, uh, doctors, philosophers, uh, folks like that. And so now we're going to move into the influence of both Judaism at first and then Christianity. So I would I want to read to you from a Jewish philosopher named Philo, fairly well known, and he wrote around 50 AD. So just after uh, Christianity enters the scene, He's a well-known philosopher in the Roman Empire. So from Philo, I'm going to read a portion of one of his writings on the law and how he applies it and looks at it with regard to what's going on in his time. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire thing. I want to give you just some specific key points that he brings up and uh, some very strong language. So again, Philo, the Jewish philosopher, and he says this, he says, If the guardians of the children cut them off from these blessings, if at their very birth they deny them all share in them, they must rest assured that they are breaking the laws of nature and stand self-condemned on the gravest charges, love of pleasure, hatred of men, murder, and the worst abomination of all, murder of their own children. For they are pleasure lovers when they mate with their wives, not to procreate children and perpetuate the race, but like pigs and goats in quest of the enjoyment which such intercourse gives. Men-haters, too, for who could more deserve the name than these enemies, these merciless foes of their offspring? Some of them do the deed with their own hands, with monstrous cruelty and barbarity. They stifle and throttle the first breath which the infants draw, or throw them into a river or into the depths of the sea, after attaching some heavy substance to make them sink more quickly under its weight. Others take them to be exposed in some desert place, hoping, they themselves say, that they may be saved, but leaving them in actual truth to suffer the most distressing fate. For all the beasts that feed on human flesh visit the spot, and feast unhindered on the infants, a fine banquet provided by their sole guardians, those who above all others should keep them safe, their fathers and mothers. Carnivorous birds, too, come flying down and gobble up the fragments. That is, if they have not discovered them earlier, for if they have, they get ready to fight the beasts of the field for the whole carcass. But suppose some passing travelers, stirred by human feeling, take pity and compassion on the castaways, and in consequence raise them up, give them food and drink, and do not shrink from paying all the other attentions which they need. What do we think of such highly charitable actions? Do we not consider that those who brought them into the world stand condemned when strangers play the part of parents, and parents do not behave with even the kindness of strangers? 
So Moses then, as I have said, implicitly and indirectly forbade the exposure of children, when he pronounced the sentence of death against those who cause the miscarriage of mothers in cases where the fetus is fully formed. Okay, so that is a citation from Philo, and he's referring to uh, the Mosaic Law regarding the death penalty for those who uh, injure a woman and, and cause her to miscarry a child and the child dies. And he's describing how some of the people in his day practice infanticide, and he's applying God's law and looking at that current Roman and Greek practice. Now, moving on from, from Philo, we do see as soon as Christianity enters the picture, things begin to change, and Christians take a very strong stance against both infanticide and abortion in the ancient Roman Empire. Now, one of the earliest teachings is called the Didache. We don't know who wrote it, but it was an early uh, kind of pamphlet or teaching that new Christians would be given when they became believers and were baptized. Uh, and it's dated to around the first century. So within a generation of the first apostles and the, and the life of Jesus, now we have what's called the Didache or the teaching, right? And here is just one section of what it says, quote, And the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit pederasty, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not practice witchcraft, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born, you shall not covet the things of your neighbor, you shall not swear, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not speak evil. You shall bear no grudge. You shall not be double-minded nor double-tongued. For to be double-tongued is a snare of death. Your speech shall not be false nor empty, but fulfilled by deed. You shall not be covetous, nor rapacious, nor a hypocrite, nor evil disposed, nor haughty. You shall not take evil counsel against your neighbor. You shall not hate any man. But some you shall reprove, and concerning some you shall pray and some you shall love more than your own life, end quote. So again, this requirement upon new believers to not kill a child by abortion or by infanticide or exposure. Now, within several generations, we have uh, a man named Tertullian, an early Christian father, writing around the year 200 AD. In his book, A Treatise on the Soul, he provides a very detailed description of what tools are used in abortion, and not infanticide, but actually abortion. And I want to read two sections to you here, and in this writing of his, he is displaying the belief that life begins at conception, and he's showing the Romans, the, the, the pagan Romans, just how disturbing their practices are. And so, you know, the, the early Christians were often accused of doing wicked things. You know, they would call each other brother and sister, right? And so the pagans would be like, ah, you see, they're committing incest. You know, they're having a love feast. Uh, they, they drink the blood of Jesus. They eat the body of Christ. So they're cannibals. And so a lot of times the early Christians would demonstrate through their writings that these accusations are completely twisted and false and that really the guilt lies with the pagan Romans. So here's what he says in his treatise. In our case, murder being once for all forbidden, 
we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being derives blood from other parts of the body for its sustenance. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing. Nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. That is a man which is going to be one. Accordingly, among surgeons' tools, there is a certain instrument which is formed with a nicely adjusted flexible frame for opening the uterus, first of all, and keeping it open. It is further furnished with an annular blade, by means of which the limbs within the womb are dissected, with anxious but unfaltering care, its last appendage being a blunted or covered hook, wherewith the entire fetus is extracted by a violent delivery. There is also another instrument in the shape of a copper needle or spike, by which the actual death is managed in this furtive robbery of life. They give it, from its infanticide function, the name of Ambros Factes, the slayer of the infant, which was, of course, alive. Such apparatus was possessed both by Hippocrates and Asclepiades and Erasistratus and Herophilus, that dissector of even adults, and the milder Serranus himself, who all knew well enough that a living being had been conceived and pitied this most luckless infant state, which had first to be put to death to escape being tortured alive. So, again, fairly disturbing, fairly graphic depiction of some of the instruments that the Romans had almost 2,000 years ago. And he argues, Tertullian argues, that even Hippocrates knew about these instruments, and Hippocrates was 400 years before Christ. So now we're talking almost 2,500 years ago. There were instruments used uh, for causing uh, abortions. Now, I want to move on to another early Christian father called Clement of Alexandria, writing around the same time as Tertullian, around 200 AD, and he's writing a, a document called the Pedagogue, or the Tutor, and he describes both the immoral state of the Roman Empire and some of their wicked practices. So here, here's what he says, quote, But these women delight in intercourse with the effeminate, and crowds of abominable creatures flow in, of unbridled tongue, filthy in body, filthy in language, men enough for lewd offices, ministers of adultery, giggling and whispering, and shamelessly making through their noses sounds of lewdness and fornication to provoke lust, endeavoring to please by lewd words and attitudes, inciting to laughter, the precursor of fornication. And sometimes when inflamed by any provocation, either these fornicators or those who follow the rabble of abominable creatures to destruction make a sound in their nose like a frog, as if they had got anger dwelling in their nostrils. But those who are more refined than these keep Indian birds and Median peafowls and recline with peak-headed creatures, playing with satyrs, delighting in monsters. They laugh when they hear thirsties, and these women purchasing Thersites highly valued, pride themselves not in their husbands, but in those wretches which are a burden on the earth, and overlook the chaste widow, who is of far higher value than a Melitaean pup, and look askance at a just old man, who is lovelier in my estimation than a monster purchased for money. And though maintaining parrots and curlews, they do not receive the orphan child, but they expose children that are born at home, and take up the young of birds, and prefer irrational to rational creatures, 
although they ought to undertake the maintenance of old people with a character for sobriety, who are fairer in my mind than apes, and capable of uttering something better than nightingales. So Clement there is describing several different practices. He's describing uh, just very lewd, very uh, uh, loose women who are engaging in fornication, and no doubt there is many men who are happy to go along with it, and there's no shame in what they're doing. But then he also describes the tendency of, of pagan Roman women to not even value their own husbands if they are married, uh, and they would rather just spend time with, with exotic pets and animals than having children. And if they have children, they expose those children, basically they kill them, or they abandon them, but they would rather have young birds and, and other animals, and they neglect the widow and the orphan and the elderly and the children uh, in order to just really spend time with apes and nightingales and, again, fancy animals being brought in all throughout the world to the flourishing Roman Empire. So now, we see a picture of what's going on in the empire at this time. Fast forward a few more generations, and you have the rise of the first Christian emperors that begin to change things in the empire. Now, there's a man named Lactantius in around 380, and he is a Christian, and he's actually an advisor, becomes advisor to the emperor Constantine. So I want to read to you a couple of portions from one of his writings. And again, keep in mind, he was an advisor to the Emperor Constantine, who, as emperor, will become a Christian. But here is what Lactantius says. He says this, Therefore, in this command of God, no exception whatsoever must be made. It is always wrong to kill a man whom God has intended to be a sacrosanct creature. Let no one then think that it is to be conceded even that newly born children may be done away with, and especially great impiety. God breeds souls into them for life, not for death. Yet men, lest they stain their hands with that which is a crime, deny light not given by them to souls still fresh and simple. Does someone think that they will be sparing of a stranger's blood who are not of their own? These are without any question criminal and unjust. What of those whom a false piety forces to expose? Are they able to be judged innocent, who cast their own members as prey for dogs, and kill whatever is in them more cruelly than if they had strangled it? Parasites complain of the narrowness of their opportunities, and pretend that they are not able to provide for bringing up several children, as if in truth the opportunities are in the power of those possessing them or as if God does not daily make the rich poor and the poor rich. So, if someone is not able to bring up children on account of poverty, it is more satisfactory that he refrain from intercourse with his wife than that he corrupt the works of God. So, there, Lactantius is, is trying to counter the argument, you know, well, we're too impoverished to raise up more children. We need to kill them. We need to expose them. And he's arguing, wouldn't, wouldn't it just be better to refrain from having intercourse than to stain your hands with blood? An argument for self-control, essentially. Now, eventually, Emperor Constantine, around 331 AD, will become a Christian, and he will begin to change some of the rules, although not entirely. So first, Constantine will make it immoral for a father who exposes his child 
to be able to demand his child back. I mentioned this last time in the previous episode that Roman law allowed it that even if a father abandoned his child and exposed it, and let's say that child was adopted by a passing family, when that child grew up, let's say 10, 11, 12 years old, the original biological father could demand that child back and had absolute authority to do so. And the adoptive parents had no rights. So Constantine begins to change that law and says, okay, well, no, if, if a father abandons his child, he loses his um, absolute authority over that child. He has abdicated that authority. And so now he cannot demand that child back. So this encourages adoption more uh, instead of just people picking up the child. And since the child could just go back to the original father any time, they're not going to actually adopt that child as their own. Raise it, they'll raise it as a slave or a gladiator or a prostitute instead. Now, fast forward 40 years, and we have Emperor Valentinian I, another Christian emperor around 374 AD. This emperor decides to make it illegal to kill or expose children. Okay, and in this case, though, he focuses on the rights of the child, not the rights of the father. So again, in Roman law, fathers had absolute authority. So they were the ones that decided whether the child had value or not. They were the ones that decided whether it lived or died. And so a woman who killed her children against the wishes of the father, that woman was guilty and could be punished. But it was only illegal because... It was against the father's wishes. Now, with Emperor Valentinian, the argument is, no, now the children have value regardless of the thoughts of the father. And he says this in, in one of his laws. He says, quote, If a man or a woman commit the crime of killing a child, it will be a capital offense. Everyone is obliged to raise his own child. If anyone exposes it, he will be subject to the stipulated punishment. End quote. So again, that's that's basically the death penalty for anyone who kills their own children, um, even exposing it. So it, maybe the child doesn't even die, but is perhaps picked up or or adopted. Well, the father, whoever whoever did the exposure, is liable for punishment. Now, as time goes on, and we see the fall of the Roman Empire eventually, but uh, even the Eastern Empire, so. Uh, Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire uh, continues with trying to implement Christian laws over the empire. And Emperor Justinian, this is around 536 AD, uh, who was uh, the emperor of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, uh, uh, ruling and reigning in Constantinople, and he's a Christian, and he even further changes the laws and makes them again more in line with what Christians would believe, and he's, he argues that those who adopt exposed children, so a child is exposed, and those who pass by, if they take and pick up that child, they could not enslave them. The child was guaranteed freedom. It was a free child, could not be raised as a slave or as a prostitute or as a gladiator. And the original father, of course, if he abandoned his child, could not reclaim that child. And those who were caught exposing a child were punishable by death. And if a woman had an abortion, 
for any reason, the husband could divorce her. That was a legitimate reason to divorce your wife if she had an abortion. So this is, we see the beginning of what we would call a Christianization of the Roman law and will carry on throughout uh, history and find its way into England under Anglo-Saxon law of Alfred the Great in English common law and eventually to American common law in the laws we have today. Sadly, and this is particularly disturbing, our laws here in modern America are becoming more pagan, but it's a different kind of pagan. It is not a patriarchal pagan law, it's a matriarchal pagan law, because this time it is mater familias, the mother has the power. Today now, what we're seeing is that women have absolute authority over their children. Fathers have no say in the fate of their unborn child. If the woman values it, it has value. If the woman does not value it, it may be aborted, killed. Fathers have no say. A complete reversal of what was under the pagan Roman Empire where mothers had no say. Only the father did. And the motives that we're seeing today with abortion are still the same. Economic fear. A fear of of poverty, trying to avoid poverty, not wanting to take away from the wealth of future or already existing children. You want a better life for children in the future, or you want a better life for your children now, so might as well sacrifice the children that you're about to have. Other reasons might be a desire to maintain one's looks, or to maintain sexual liberty, to be able to do whatever you wanted sexually. And we see an interesting trend in our culture of a desire to have pets and more exotic pets rather than children. This is nothing new. This is exactly what Clement of Alexandria was describing in the Roman Empire almost, uh, you know, about 1,800 years ago. So again, nothing's new under the sun. The methods of abortion are still the same. The ancient Romans used drugs or surgery. Today, we do the same thing. We're just more efficient and more effective, less risk to the mother. The view of the child is still the same. I, I showed how in the, in the previous episode what early pagans believed. They believed that the, the unborn child was just a part of the mother's body and eventually maybe around 40 days for a male or 90 days for a female, the child kind of has life, kind of has value, and may, maybe has rights. But before that, it had no rights And even after that, it really doesn't have any rights. It's not really a human. And adoption, of course, was difficult in ancient Roman law because of the fact that the original father could reclaim that child at any time. And again, it's interesting that today, adoption is still difficult uh, for unwanted children. And a lot of times, biological mothers can get their children back very, very easily And it's hard for adoptive parents to maintain their rights over the child. So we have this reversal going on in our culture, back to a a pagan form of matriarchal uh, law. And I just want to give you one example of a law that's being proposed today that is eerily similar or going back to ancient Roman pagan law. And it's Maryland Senate Bill 669. Now, it's been introduced in the Maryland legislature. It's not, it's not actually at the desk of the governor. 
It hasn't been decided on yet. I believe they are in recess right now. They'll be coming back, I, I suppose, at the end of summer. But in that bill, they're proposing that there can be no investigation or penalty for, quote, terminating or attempting to terminate the person's own pregnancy or experiencing a miscarriage perinatal death related to a failure to act or stillbirth. A person may bring a cause of action for damages if the person was subject to unlawful arrest or criminal investigation for a violation of this section. Okay, so what does that all mean? Well, essentially, you can't investigate and you can't penalize someone for either terminating a pregnancy, so killing an unborn child, or attempting to kill an unborn child, or experiencing a miscarriage slash perinatal death related to a failure to act, okay? So a failure to do something. So the baby's born alive, maybe it was a botched abortion, and you kind of let it sit there. You are not obligated to do anything to save the the child that was just born. You can You can fail to act and let it die, and you cannot be held liable for that. The doctor cannot be held liable for that. And in fact, if anyone attempts to make you liable for that, you can bring a civil suit for damages against that person or entity or organization that tried to sue you. So you can kind of use the law against them if they dare try to challenge you on that. Now, the key term in all this is perinatal, not prenatal, not postnatal. What does perinatal mean? Well, it's not actually defined in the bill. You have to go to the Maryland Administrative Code. So if you go to the Maryland Administrative Code, Title 10, Department of Health, it defines perinatal as including both prenatal and postpartum periods. Well, what is that? Well, prenatal is, of course, anything from conception to birth. Well, what's postpartum? Well, postpartum is defined as the period that includes up to 180 days after birth. And that's straight from Maryland Code 10.9.39.1, Title 10 Department of Health. So up to 180 days, six months after birth is the postpartum period. And the perinatal period includes that. This is essentially pagan Roman law all over again. You can, by a failure to act, you can just do nothing and you and up to six months after birth, if the child dies due to failure to act, you are not liable and you cannot be held liable. And if someone tries to hold you liable, you can sue them for damages. That is pagan law. That is pagan Roman law all over again, but it's more focused on absolute authority of the mother rather than Roman law, absolute authority of the father. And it just uses very official and scientific words. The baby is still not viewed as living until later on. At that time, it's just a part of the mother's body, but even after it's born and it's separated from the mother's body, it still has no value unless the mother gives it value. And so... This is quite striking and evidence that there really is nothing new under the sun. And as Christianity is diminished in the West, we will revert back to a pagan-style law. It will just look a little different. It'll be matriarchal instead of 
patriarchal. So what, what do we do now? Well, obviously, as Christians, we need to pray about this. We need to speak out against these laws and encourage our legislators to not vote on laws like this, but to make good laws that are in accordance with God's word and that honor the value of a child made in the image of God. So uh, that is my encouragement to all of you who are listening. And let us pray that, as an example, this Maryland Senate Bill 669 doesn't move forward. That it either gets dismissed in the in the Senate or vetoed by the governor. So that brings us to the end of our end of our time and the end of our look at infanticide and abortion in the ancient world. There's there's many more resources out there, more early uh, church fathers, uh, early philosophers and historians that talk about these things. I just tried to bring out for you some of the key uh, passages, some of the key and most important statements that have been made in the past. And it's important that we do consider the past, learn from it, and apply it to the future. So again, I hope that this was a useful episode for you. Of course, if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, uh, you wish to uh, challenge some of my statements, or you have some um, supporting documents on your own that you would like me to consider, please let me know. You can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Patreon. Just look for Governed by God or the GBG Podcast, and um, I'll get your message that way. Again, please share the show with a friend. Really appreciate it. It helps to get the word out to more people. We need to be aware of these things as Christians and to help others to learn about the past and what might happen in the future if we don't uh, do something about it and and stand up for what is right. So thank you again for for joining me today. And until next time, take care and God bless.